Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean and this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing a paper that is titled A Review of Three Decades of Research Dedicated to Making Equine Bones Stronger, Implications for Horses and Humans. This paper is written by Brian D. Nielsen, and Brian was one of Nancy's supervisors for her paper that she has published, a co-author with her on that paper. And... In this study, what they did was they looked at skeletal injuries because these are common in athletic courses. The literature review covers over three decades of research focused on preventing bone-related injuries and demonstrates how research actually develops over time. In an initial study evaluating the role of dietary silicon, seeing what it can play in racehorse injuries, there was an observation of mineral loss from the cannon bone after the commencement of training. And then subsequent work on this revealed that the loss of that mineral content from the cannon bone was actually associated with the horses being removed from pasture and placed into stables. So this is not something that they were originally looking at. This resulted in decreased mechanical loading on the skeleton. And as the bone responds to the load that's placed on it, continued research focused on housing and exercise requirements to try and prevent this bone loss. So they found that only short sprints are needed to maintain or increase bone strength. Conversely, endurance exercise that doesn't include high speed fails to cause the bone to become stronger, which was particularly interesting. And exercise can be either forced or voluntary, but having free access to exercise does not guarantee the animal will actually perform it like us humans. <laughs> so they found that horse behavior needs to be taken into consideration as well. And then to kind of summarize, they said, while proper nutrition is critical for bone health, it doesn't actually guarantee it if exercise isn't correct. So I thought this paper was really fascinating. Thank you, Nancy, for suggesting it, because it's made me look even at myself differently in how I'm approaching exercise. Yeah, I think that's the best part of this article is that it can include human bone as well. And that would be like a sedentary lifestyle is similar to being in a stall and then improper nutrition means maybe not enough calcium or other uh, minerals that are important for bone health. And then also uh, drugs you take, uh, pharmaceutical side effects. And in horses, those were um, the Lasix uh, for racing, uh, which is furosemide. And then also um, it could be omeprazole, which is for gastric ulcers. They think at a treatment dose for a longer period than two months, it may inhibit 
calcium absorption. So that's something to consider. And then also the bisphosphonates, which, um, you know, they have those for women now too, or elderly men, where you can get an injection or take a monthly pill. The problem with those is it inhibits the osteoclast. So those are the things that uh, cause the bone to reabsorb or you lose bone um, Mm -hmm. density. And so, but in the end, it kind of impairs bone healing. So someone told me they equated it to a tree branch that is strong on the outside, but has nothing on the inside for strength. So Um, You know, they're just now doing all this research and um, um, unfortunately the bisphosphonates have seen higher fracture rates in the elderly after they've taken that. So I think um, it's just such an all-encompassing paper. I've read it over and over and over and I just think the fact that they could come up that bone loading is your ticket and um, speed exercise and horses and humans, it's resistance exercise. So uh, it's just so interesting the way bone works. It made me think of wild horses in um, different countries. And even because we've mentioned before on one of the podcasts, the hoof strength, obviously they have, and they don't have problems um, typically with their hooves. You would never see a wild horse that's out on the plains with overgrown hooves because they wear them down and they, you know, they're galloping and going at high speeds at certain times as well. So I would imagine that bone density increases. Um, I liked your example, actually, of the tree. I didn't think of it that way. I was thinking of bird's bones because <laughs> they're super hollow on the inside for them to be able to fly. Um, That's but something- about the, the dietary silicon, have you ever supplemented with that, Nancy? I have not. And um, I don't even really, I only give the uh, nutritional requirements on the calcium and phosphorus and keep those ratios. Because like in women or elderly men, once again, if you take calcium, but you don't have vitamin enough vitamin D, that mm-hmm. calcium is less likely to absorb. So there's always a good balance of minerals. So I'm always hesitant to just pick one and supplement it because you might be mixing it all up yeah. and upsetting the apple cart. Yeah. And I think okay. unless it's something that's necessary as well, you yeah. know, they if they've got a well-balanced diet, which we've mentioned before, Um, But what was interesting about the silicon is in one of the studies, they had three groups that they supplemented with it. They had low, medium and high. Um, And what they found is that it could potentially decrease injury rates in athletes. So they had horses. um, So they compared the low, medium and high dosage horses to horses that weren't supplemented at all. And the horses that had some level of supplementation um, had less injuries than the control group. So none of the horses that were supplemented um, had to be pulled from any races. But when they looked at the control group, which had more horses injured than were able to complete the study without injury. 
So I thought that was really fascinating. I think they said as well, the supplementation, because they found in one group of horses that they had a faster average race time, but they did note that the supplementation doesn't actually make the horses any faster. It concluded that faster individuals within that treatment group, it was the horses on the medium dosage, and the reason they were faster was because they could withstand the rigors of the training without experiencing injury. So it gave them that kind of protection that allowed them to train harder and therefore reach higher levels of cardiovascular health. Yeah. And he did say that, um, of course, what happens when these papers come out, then everyone runs to make a silicon supplement. And then they're not giving the full dose that was in the research uh, protocols. So then um, he said, you really have to be careful and really scrutinize commercial products that make claims based on studies, because those studies were not based on those products. And how often do we try to do that? You know, the study isn't on something uh, produced by a manufacturer. It was done Um, with another form of silicon. So Mm -hmm. anyway, that was a good point. How often I even do it where I substitute. Oh, they said this is supposed to be good. Whether it's, um, what was that one? B12 for PPID. And yet study wasn't on the same formula of B12 that might be on the market as a supplement. So your dose may be different and even the quality of it. So we always have to remember that. I think that's a great point. So we yeah. did an episode with Brittany that yep. is really great on supplements. And she talks about that in it as well. And I thought that was interesting. It came up again here that it didn't even reach the recommended daily amount. Like, no. So you're adding a supplement that's actually getting them nowhere near what they need. You're basically pouring money down the drain. And that's what Brittany had said in that that episode. And, you know, the, the whole thing with this paper, and it is open access, I'll, I'll put a link to it, um, is the fact that they started out thinking bone loss occurred because of possible nutrition. And then that led them to do further studies. And it's just like when this all started, Dr. Nielsen was an exercise rider at a racetrack in Texas. So he was completing his graduate studies at Texas A&M. And the big thing in racing is when you're training a two-year-old, it's this thing called buck shins. And it's where they Mm -hmm. get really shin sore and they'll be swelling along the, the Face or the dorsal part of that bone. And uh, you have to back off the training. You have to let that heal. And uh, a lot of times you'll paint those shins with a counter irritant to try and keep them from popping or from getting inflammation. But um, that's what he was studying and setting out because he was an exercise rider and he often talked to his trainer about buck shins. And I mean, you all go through that with young horses. And then 
a, a little bit older horse may get shin splints, which were those splint bones um, and you'll get little like pea-sized um, bone like bone fragments there. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, that started this whole thing. So he went through nutrition and then they started ending up um, realizing that bone loss occurred in early training and they were able to associate it with housing, with taking them from a pasture, running with other yearlings, um, putting them in stalls and getting them ready, say, for yearling sales or two-year-old sales. And we all do it that way because you want them to be shiny and no bites on them. You want them to have full tails. And so you kind of begin to protect them. And it ended up that that's what was creating the bone loss is them being in stalls. And wasn't it... Um... Uh, one of the researchers had no horse experience, but she had experience with human bed rest patients. And she had hypothesized this, wasn't that correct? Yes. She, she, and no, none of the horse people that had been around horses thought stall rest would induce this bone resorption because. Um, you know, these horses were going long, slow distance every day, but the long, slow distance just wasn't uh, a bone remodeling uh, exercise that helped bone strength. It wasn't enough. And I tell you, Kate, I was amazed that it was uh, just 50 meters once a week, 50 to 82 meters, yeah. just um, crazy that that short of a distance once a week made a difference at a fast speed. Yep. Yep. So unbelievable. And it was interesting that they pointed out that, um, or well, I suppose more inspiring that they pointed out stall housing of young horses doesn't limit them to this lower bone mass for the rest of their life. So if you return them to pasture while they are still young, they experience relatively fast bone growth. So essentially the stalling can be undone, but they don't know if that's the same for mature horses because that hasn't been studied yet. Yeah, I did love that one section. I don't know if I can find it or not, but they had this farm that had mainly racehorses turned out in the pasture. And they had a 33-year-old standard bred mare that had PPID or Cushing's and uh, because the thoroughbreds would run she would run because of yeah. that innate nature that they don't want to be left so he felt like that horse 33 years old with PPID they felt like that activity and that housing with thoroughbreds really made a difference to her and I think that's so important because like my ponies turned out with thoroughbreds that run and I think what saves us so much on her metabolism uh, issues is the fact that she runs with the thoroughbreds and they actually keep her fit for me so um, it's all your composition of your herd you want to make sure you don't have all deadheads you got to throw a few thoroughbreds in there to keep yeah. them all fit you keep know? them lively <laughs> for everyone <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I love that part of this. and um, But it has to ring true because, I mean, we all know, like, I think it's something in the last number of years that's become very widely acknowledged how important cardiovascular health is as you age and bone density. And in humans that, you know, we've mentioned this, I'm sure in other episodes, that's done through weight training. Um, because similar, like when the horses are running, that's huge mechanical load on their skeleton because of the size and the weight of them. So we know now in humans how important that is to longevity. And I think we've known it for quite a while in dogs and cats too. And then I think because in horses, they typically are so active. You know, it's it's a species of animal where even in keeping them as pets, they have those opportunities a lot of the time, whether we're riding them or training them, and that would be the forced exercise and lunging or, you know, when we're actually doing courses. Um, or if they're out to pasture, as Nancy said, and they're, you know, with their other herd mates and they're running in the pasture, even those short spurts, yeah. it's keeping that cardiovascular health. And now from this, we know it's actually maintaining bone density and into their later years that's going to have such a knock-on effect to them not suffering arthritis as well. I thought it was interesting too about he not only did horses, but he did bulls and calves and even uh, sows. They called them gestating gilts. And if they exercised them, um, they all increased in their bone density. And even the calves, they ran them like... Mm -hmm. um, See, they would have some group house, some in a box stall with no exercise. And then they had a box stall confined with a daily sprint of just 82 meters. So all the altered bone geometry was noted. And, um, you know, they compared it to the ones that did no sprinting. And then they would slaughter those um, calves for their meat and they were able to actually look into that metacarpus or that cannon bone and they could actually see um, the bone uh, increase, mineral content increase and bone density increase. So they just, just didn't go by radiographs. But Kate, I thought you made a great point that they had the 100% stalled horses and then the 100% pastured horses and then they did a group that was 50 50 so for me because of the pony eating grass faster than any of the other four thoroughbreds I bring mine in in the evenings and I give that pasture a rest and I give the pony a rest from all that carbohydrate and the fact that the 50 percent pastured horses saw uh, no bone loss. That encouraged me because um, you can do a um, pasture and then in a stall and you're all right. So um, that made me feel better. And then the ones that were stalled 100% of the time, after 56 days, they did show bone loss, but then they were turned out for a year and then re-radiographed and they caught up 
with the pastured and the combination group of pasture and stall. And they all ended up being uh, the same mineral content uh, on their bones and everything. So that you can make up for it. If it's a young horse, they know for sure they're not doomed just because they've been stabled. And, you know, I have a feeling that this even may apply to senior horses because, um, you know, movement is everything. And I think there's enough proof in the human science that elderly patients that do resistant work uh, on their bones and weightlifting and keep active, um, they have less bone loss as they age. So I think there's some positives here. Now you also have to have proper nutrition along with that. I think, yeah, that's the great takeaway from it is that stalling isn't a negative thing. And there's lots of different ways to stall or group housing and things like that. You know, it comes down to behavior and and your setup and the purpose of the horse, what work they're doing. But it's not a negative thing. And it can be, as Nancy said, with those yearlings, sometimes we don't have a choice. We have to protect them. And we if that's a livelihood, we need to make a sale and we need to um, get these horses to, you know, top shape to be able to race. And it can it can kind of be undone, I suppose. But the changes you could make, which is interesting from this, is if you took those yearlings that are being stalled and just let them out. I, I always see it when cattle are housed for a couple of months over the winter, or a couple of weeks even at a time. When you let them out, they start prancing and bucking about the place because they've got all this energy they're ready to release. And if you let a yearling out, you know, just give them the opportunity to have that run. I'm sure it's nerve wracking when you've got a yearling thoroughbred and you think it's going to run straight into a fence and damage itself. Yeah. But <laughs> getting it out, even for an hour or two, those sprints a couple of times a week, that's what's the savior in this. Yeah. And I also want to point out, you mentioned lunging, um, lunging or round pinning in a circle. We always thought, in a young thoroughbred that was detrimental to their ankles, especially in knees. However, this article points out that it's that bending and that's that um, force that that joint takes on, even it, in a, a curvature or on a circle benefits that bone area. So that that uh, kind of went counter to what I was always thinking that if we lunge them in tight circles, we're going to do joint damage. But this, this article um, proved otherwise that even lunging at uh, a pretty good clip would uh, benefit their bone strength. That's my favorite part about this podcast. And it's always I think what motivates me and spurs me on is when, you know, we come across a paper that challenges our assumptions from what we've previously been doing, because that was the purpose of this. And I think sometimes, you know, we might have a knowledge already on the topics that come up, so we won't be particularly surprised. We'll be somewhat surprised by the results. But in this, it, things like that, where it's like, oh, I always thought that wasn't what you should do and then you're reading this you're like it's actually improving that bone strength to get them to work their body and it that builds up muscle too that ram penning because 
they're having to use different muscles than they would if they're just running straight in the field. Yeah. And, you know, um, if you have a little swelling in an ankle, of course, you don't want to be putting that ankle through any of those forces. But if you're fine in a nice tight ankle, I mean, that kind of changed my perspective. And I tell you, it's not a coincidence. Uh, When I had young horses on the track, it seemed like between day 60 of their training and day 120, we would get close to that day 90, which is about the time you can start thinking to race them. And doggone it, they'd fracture a sesamoid or there'd be an injury. And this paper brought out why that is. It's because we bring them in from the pasture and You train them slow and you might take a month to six weeks before you do any type of speed work. And that's not like a real hard work and they're losing bone all along. So we take them to the track and we think they're not ready for speed work because Mm -hmm. they haven't been in training. But this is just talking about 50 meters once a week. That's um, a half of a football field. So that's not very much to be able to maintain good bone quality. Which is even better that it's not something that's hard to achieve. It's something that we can try and provide to all of our horses. Yeah, one time I took a horse that was here at my farm on layoff, took him down to the track, and we went ahead and got him ready just to go ahead in a nice, easy gallop. And um, we had a new rider that had just come in from Puerto Rico, and he spoke very poor English, and we spoke very poor Spanish. So uh, we had told him just to kind of nice and easy for five furlongs, nothing, nothing fast. And we thought we had it through to him. Doggone, he worked that horse five furlongs. <laughs> the horse had just arrived that morning. And I was so worried and thought we had hurt him. And you know what? He, he came out of that just fine, but I did his legs up and everything. And you know, he that horse ran for like seven or eight years and had and never did have a leg injury. So um, he was, uh, you know, it was just a he was tested that day, but it, was, was, it proved well. And I was a little bit miffed about it. I will admit but... the panic and the cost as well. You know, there's so much that goes into it. You know, obviously the welfare is our first concern. Well, it but. Was- I thought he wasn't fit. Now I had been jogging him around the farm and he had been on turnout and I tent, I was the person that always, I wait to the last minute to take him to the track because their whole lifestyle is going to change. They're going to go from being turned out um, to being in a stall and just going to the track and then on a walker and then back into the stall. So i put it off to the last possible day and I kind of start pre-training here on the farm now he does uh you know run a lot so probably he was fitter than what I give uh credit for yeah 
But anyway, um, that's my dog in the background. I'm glad she wanted to join the podcast. <laughs> She's ready for some attention. <laughs> but anyway, I, any, you know, this is a great read. And it makes us not want to baby those horses and keep them confined to a stall. Uh, let them be horses and use them and, um, you know, read the paper. And there's lots of good research referenced in this paper. Uh, look those up and read them, too. It really opens your eye on the physiology of the horse and how their adaptations are immense in their response to what we put them through. And as Nancy said, it's open access, so it is available. We'll put the link up on the show notes as well. Yeah, sounds great. And thanks, everyone, for joining in. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Take care.